This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and this week is a first. We are in a four-way conversation, um, and I spoke to Louise Pulsford, Josiane Smith, uh, and Dame Julia Unwin, who's a returning guest to the podcast, which was uh, a great delight. And Louise and Josiane work for the Social Innovation Exchange, or SIX, and Julia is currently uh, doing some work for them uh, as a consultant as well Uh, and they were here to talk about a project that they've got which is ongoing but they've um, just pulled together a really interesting kind of horizon scanning report looking at issues affecting philanthropy at the moment and what should be done about them and how they're going to go affect philanthropy in the future in the context of Covid and the impact that it's had and that's been taking into account points of view from sort of all over the world and different stakeholders and foundations that they've spoken to, identifying key trends and what some of the main challenges are. So I I spoke to to all three of them and they gave me an update on the work that they've been doing, some of the findings from the project. Julia talked us through um, the arguments she'd made in a provocation paper that she did um, for the project and we touched on all kinds of interesting topics. Um, It's quite a long conversation so I won't give too much more information uh, at the moment. Um, Just to say also that the other unusual thing about this episode is there is a uh, DVD extra or a bonus episode if you're interested because uh, Louise decided uh, in the run-up to the podcast that it would be fun if she got the opportunity to ask me some questions. Um, uh, I didn't push for it but I won't say I wasn't delighted to have the chance uh, to to give my opinion on some of these things Uh, and that's available as a separate bonus podcast episode that's also out at the moment so do check that out if you want to hear me give my thoughts uh, on some of this stuff. So without further ado let's get into the conversation. I'll be back at the end uh, for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. So I am here with uh, three guests uh, for the first time on the podcast. This is a, a, a novelty. Um, but I am here with Louise Pulsivit, uh, Josiane Smith and Dame Julia Unwin. Hi to all of you. It's difficult. For, hello. It's difficult for you all to say hello at the same time. I've just realised so I'm learning something already. Um, but I should introduce you all um, and then get you to say a bit about kind of who you are and, and why we're here talking today. But Louise is uh, CEO of the Social Innovation Exchange or, or SIX. Uh, Josiane is key programmes lead at SIX and uh, Julia um, is a strategic advisor at SIX among many other things she does and perhaps most importantly also a returning guest on the podcast which is you know a rare honour indeed I think you're the second person that we've we've had back. Um, so I guess the best place to start maybe for people listening um, uh, perhaps uh, Louise or Josiane to say a bit about what SIX is and kind of what the work that you do is and, and kind of particularly the project that we're here talking about today. Sure. Thanks, Rodrigue. It's Louise uh, and really nice to be here and also nice to challenge you on your first three-way conversational podcast. Um, In fact, SIX is an organisation that does challenge and inspire people to do things differently, in particular use innovation to solve social challenges. Um, 
So hopefully some innovation to our conversational challenges today will work out well. We'll see six in practice. So we're a global exchange. We were um, established about a decade ago and we're focused on building the field of social innovation. We're probably best known as our role as a connector or convener of um, quite interesting, I think, events. Um, that really do focus on exchange and learning. But we also have two other intertwined areas of work, which are around building capacity for people to do this kind of work more, um, both individuals, but also in bigger organizations. Um, but we also do a lot of kind of global scanning and kind of knowledge and insights work, which is where this, this, this work that we're gonna talk about too uh, fits in today. And we're really committed to sharing those insights uh, globally in interesting ways. All of our work draws completely um, on different sectors. Uh, so we work a lot with uh, governments, uh, different levels, national to city to Europe-wide, uh, with universities, with um, corporates, but also we have this big piece of work with foundations, uh, which I'll, I'll let Josiane tell you more about. Um, but just to explain how that started, this programme with uh, Philanthropic Foundations has been going on for about five years. And it was because there were some funders at our cross-sector six events that told us that they were having very different kind of conversations at the six events than the conversations that we're having in their, in their um, national or regional or thematic philanthropy forums or with the people that they would usually speak to. Partly because they're more globally focused. Um, we were perhaps a little more challenging uh, because we're a bit outside of the field and just ask quite different kind of questions, uh, really from a point of innocence. And um, I think the people that have come and worked with us and come to our events and our retreats for philanthropic foundations are both ones who share a, um, an approach and a mindset that they want to do things differently. Um, they want to be challenged. We work mainly with CEO level or senior level um, people. And there are also people that do have a, a kind of global outlook to the world work. Even if they work nationally, they believe that we really need to learn from around the world to improve what we're doing at home. But maybe Josie Ann, could you talk a little bit about our year on power, for example? Right. And so, so yeah, that really builds on, on uh, the, the work of uh, the, the funders node over the past five years which um, convenes around loads of different topics like social cohesion and risk and legitimacy and um, strategic foresight systems change um, kind of topics. But we found that what kind of underlined all of them was the conversation about power, which I know you're very familiar with on this podcast. Power is, is obviously increasingly an important topic and we wanted to um, build a programme of activity around the year on power effectively. So we've done a lot of kind of learning exchanges and provocations and media kind of um, releases in, in press and obviously on this podcast to really um, embed this reflective, authentic, effective response um, to the tensions and questions around power in, um, in the kind of public forums and obviously in um, more curated forums. Um, and so that's kind of the purpose of this, this year on power is to think about you know, how we can mobilize, um, as I said, an effective and authentic philanthropic response to the very many social challenges that are, that are facing us um, at the present point and, and thinking about how we recenter that conversation 
change who's asking the questions and, and change what answers we're getting around them. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fascinating, certainly, and, and what I know of the work you do. And as you say, power is, is very much something I'd like to talk about on this podcast. And um, Julia, it'd be really interesting to just to hear from you before we go and talk about um, you know, the particular kind of provocation you've written as part of this piece of work. Just you've obviously done lots of, of pieces of work in, in the sector for, for quite a while. And the last time you were on the podcast, we were talking about the work you've done with the Civil Society Futures Inquiry. What, what was it that drew you to this particular piece of work that you sort of found interesting about it? Well, I've worked in and around philanthropy for decades. Um, and what appealed to me about the approach six are taking is that they're not of the world of philanthropy, but they're bringing together people within philanthropy. I think we're terribly good as philanthropic institutions at worrying about things ourselves. And actually the opportunity to be brought together by people outside that, but who have an interest and a commitment in it, seemed to me to be really powerful. I have to say, when I first heard that they were looking for somebody to help advise, I wasn't at all sure what I could bring, but actually the grounding I have in how it works in practice, combined with the challenge of looking at things globally, seems to me to have brought more light to a world that needs it at the moment. Um, I did sign up to work with SIX before COVID started. What COVID's done has changed quite a lot of how we've worked, but it's also, I think, accelerated quite a lot of the change we're talking about. Yeah, and I think that's something that, that lots of people have found the, the effect it's had is it's presented some new opportunities and challenges, but it's, you know, as much as anything amplified or accelerated things that were already in train. Um, it'd be really interesting to just to move on at this point, to, uh, if you say a bit about the particular provocation piece I know you've done, and that's sort of part of this project as they pull together, as well as the, the work reflecting um, the, the scan that they've done of the work of foundations kind of around the world, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, some provocation pieces to try and kind of get people thinking about what the, the big challenges are. Maybe you could say a bit about what the focus of your piece was and kind of, you know, what, you, what you're provoking people around. Well, I think we have to remember that the last five years have seen unprecedented challenge to the notion of philanthropy. We've had three significant books, which we can argue about all the time, coming out of the United States, challenging the notion of how philanthropic organisations work and what good they do, what damage they might do. At the same time, we've had challenger organisations as we have in every sector. So the foundations are being joined by incredibly wealthy individuals, eye-watering amounts of money doing philanthropic things and platforms raising money very differently. And those three things seem to me to be challenging to foundations, but also challenging to our notion of philanthropy, which is why I think the focus on power is so interesting. Because I don't start from a position that power is bad. I think it's the question of acknowledging it, recognizing it and using it appropriately. So the fact that there has been a push for greater transparency in the UK, the fantastic work 360 has done, but also the notion that we can no longer treat philanthropy as a secret private interaction has changed things long before 2020 brought all its delights. There's been a big focus on new forms of engagement and shifting power. The discussion in the UK, again, about more place-based giving, about getting other people involved in making decisions was pretty embryonic, but actually some really interesting work going on. Huge pressures quite rightly, on issues of equity and diversity and understanding quite how discriminatory our previous funding practices were. And then a very big conversation with, again, tentative moves about how do we find a way of supporting movements and networks and not just established institutions. Now, into all of that sort of maelstrom of thinking about it and a lot of 
conferencing and discussions and write interesting papers and podcasts by people like you, comes COVID and the lockdown. And what it does is it shines a really bright light on what's happening, but it accelerates change and actually made people tear up very precious rules, um, some of it in the way that the voluntary sector had asked them to do it. So suddenly we see a pivot and how funders are behaving. I think what's interesting is, is that a pivot to a new permanent approach or is it a temporary response to crisis? Or, and this is my first provocation, is it a new way we have to work as we go into a decade which we always knew would be full of volatility? I mean, nobody expected the 2020s to be quite bad. I don't think we expected to start with quite as dramatically as it has, but we knew that economic volatility was a huge challenge, huge challenge. We knew that climate chaos was coming our way. And indeed, the floods in Yorkshire, where I live earlier in the year, were for those households as dramatic as COVID has ever been. And the response from philanthropic foundations as important, even though it was highly local. We knew there might be cyber attacks. We knew there might be another pathogen. So in a sense, getting ready for volatility um, has also accelerated. And I think that's happened. But in the UK, we're good at this stuff. Philanthropic organisations have responded to change. I'm old enough and been around long enough to remember the National AIDS Trust being created when suddenly that horrific pandemic arrived and people were dying in their droves and fighting for governments to pay attention. And foundations led, I have to say, by the late lamented Robert Maxwell, brought money together and created the National AIDS Trust to give specialist funding. And that changed the face of that pandemic. It changed both the care people got and the medical interventions. The Northern Ireland Voluntary Trust did the same when funders didn't know how to put funding into that really contested part of the UK and did it through the Northern Ireland Voluntary Trust. And um, the Charity Know How Fund convened by the Charities Aid Foundation and the Foreign Office was a way of getting money to emerging democracies after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So in a sense, we've done it. We've created intermediaries, which are now part of our landscape. We've shared knowledge. We've gathered evidence, we've horizon scanned. This is another such change on a global scale and bigger than anything we've seen before. But I think it's something we've done before. And we need to remember our history, not let it dictate us, but recognise that we can change what we do when the environment changes. And that's what happened at the start of COVID. Across the world, people pivoted. The global scan, which Louise and um, Josiane are going to talk about, shows just how much foundations changed what they did. And interestingly to me, how much they were able to change if they had already dealt with crisis. So in New Zealand, where they had earthquakes and that horrific shooting in the mosque, devastating things happened. In countries where there have been huge natural disasters, they were more used to changing the rules. And I think we'll hear a bit more about that. But the reason I think this matters so much is that we in the UK are very good at talking to ourselves. And what SIX does and what the global scan enables us to do is to listen really acutely and have a bit of humility when we listen and learn from foundations who've coped through civil war, regime change, natural disaster, stuff we haven't had to deal with here. There is a huge amount to learn. And that's why I've been delighted to be a strategic advisor for the last six months. But I have to say, I've learned a huge amount as we've gone along. I think it's yeah, it's really interesting. I think I certainly found in the early stages of the pandemic and, and you know, still up to this point that 
because it all feels so unprecedented in many ways and the scale is hard to get your, your head around, that actually looking for places where you can find potentially valuable ideas offers a huge amount of comfort. And I think history and international comparison are two of those places. So I spent you know, a lot of time sort of thinking and reading about what the response of philanthropy had been and how it had been reshaped, reshaped in sort of response to previous crises, even if they weren't directly comparable. And we've also done a lot of work in CAF kind of talking to people across Europe and beyond other infrastructure bodies to understand what the response has looked like in, in their context. And and that does give you some sense of, okay, there are places that we can go to learn about these things, even if, you know, they don't tell us everything we need to know. So, yeah, no, I mean, I really agree. And I'm really looking forward to kind of hearing about what's been found um, through this scan. And just before we move on to that, one thing I'd, I'd really interested to ask you on the on the back of what you've said there, some a lot of those previous responses to, to crisis feel as though naturally they end up with a process of centralization to some extent in, in response, because actually the thing that philanthropy needs to do in recognition of the, the kind of acute needs during a crisis is to be more efficient in terms of distributing resources to where they need to go. And that kind of tends to dictate, actually, let's bring everything together in one place and have a focal point so that we can redistribute assets out um, more effectively. But but is there any sense, do you get from the historical um, precedents or from what you see now, that actually the, the danger of that is that it's not sustainable over the longer term because it's kind of that that is a unique response to a particular crisis moment but actually we need to be more intentional about thinking in terms of how we build on that for something that has value over the longer term because we can't just assume that that those structures will work outside of the context of a crisis well i guess the examples i used were ones which were very 20th century and that they created an institution they created a pooling of funds and they created the opportunity to gather intelligence centrally but actually, more recently, we've seen ones which are much more distributed. I mean, the National Emergencies Trust, which was started after the Grenfell tragedy, but has actually responded to other tragedies and disasters in their response, is a, is a much more distributed model. But does the same thing of providing a platform for aggregating money, um, but has in, intentionally invested in its intelligence locally. And I suspect that a 21st century response is going to be more like that. It needs to be more sensitive to what's happening. And I think myself, it's gonna to need to be more distributed because even in a relatively small country like England, it is hard to do things from the center, let alone globally in some of the other countries that we're talking about on a much bigger scale. So I think one of the things that we will learn is that we have to do things more locally. But I started my provocation by saying that was the pressure anyway. We were moving to a place-based approach, a recognition that what happens locally is, tends to be where knowledge is held. And one of the things that I think the COVID crisis has amplified enormously is something that people like me have been saying for some time is that knowledge tends to be either local or highly specialist. It tends not to happen at a national scale. And I think what we've learned through all of the last bumpy six months is that people locally know what's going on. And that I would say this wouldn't I, but civil society in places is aware of where there are points of crisis, where there's particular need in the way that centralized bureaucracy never can be. So I think a more modern, more tech-enabled, more distributed approach is likely to look different from the examples I gave before. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think your your point there about a place was obviously already a big uh, theme within the sector and a sort of topic of, of discussion. Uh, to me, the the impact of COVID on that is fascinating because it, in one sense, it's, it shifts in the other direction. I mean, it's a truly global pandemic and actually the responses to it in some ways need to be coordinated at a national, if not kind of international scale. But actually everybody was feeling the effects of it and responding to them at a, a really kind of hyper local level. So it kind of pulls in these two different directions. And I, I certainly wasn't sure, and I'm still not entirely sure what that will do to the way people think about charity and philanthropy I mean I, I think there's one version of it which is people will end up thinking about doing stuff in their very very local neighborhood and getting more involved there but also maybe people will recognize the the importance of acting at a at a national level and and whether people are able to kind of hold those two thoughts in their mind at the same time or whether they result in a kind of shift towards philanthro localism uh, over the longer term is I think still remains to be seen I think there's some interesting data on the ways in which giving trends have shifted but um yeah the jury's probably still out on that one doesn't it go back to purpose which it always does i mean the biggest philanthropic impact globally has been gates and welcome who have been game changing and they are charities that's what they've done with their philanthropic wealth because their purpose is is genuinely root cause whereas for many other foundations and givers it is actually to do with either advocacy or um, first response and that has to be local and I think there is something about being much clearer about purpose and what you're there for and if you are concerned with first response and making sure people have enough to eat and the shielded are cared for you'd be daft to try and do that globally, globally just as trying to find an antibody test in um, Peckham is probably not the most sensible thing to be trying to do. So I think purpose it, it brings us right back to that early discussion which has always been at the heart of philanthropy, is what is it you're trying to do? Yeah, agreed. And I think that's definitely, you know, a conversation that is not new, but one that we, you know, had, seems to have sort of renewed importance at the moment. And um, maybe at this point, we can kind of move on um, and bring um, uh, Louise and Josie in, in just to, to say a bit more about what kind of, what the actual overall scope of the project was and where the, the work that, um, uh, that Julie has been talking about there kind of sits within it and what some of the things that you found from, from that wider work have been. Sure, so as, um... As COVID hit, of course, um, and especially in in Europe and North America, uh, well documented by people like you two, you know, there's a huge amount of energy in the immediate response and uh, lots of sharing, lots of lists, lots of reports, lots of articles of how people were responding. Um, and they're basically doing the two things, you know, removing bureaucracy and providing emergency funding. Um, so we wanted to add some value to this and 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 do something a little bit different. So we had two two different perspectives for us. One was around time horizons, uh, and we recognise in the middle of a pandemic when everyone's very anxious and, and angry and 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 struggling in the moment for us to say why don't we think about the long term picture is a is a bit of a challenge for some organisations. Uh, but nevertheless, that's what we did. So in terms of time horizons, we were interested in not just the now, but what the recovery phase, if, if there is one or there is to be one might look like and, and, and what, this, what these changes mean for the future and how people will operate. One of the things that's interesting, I think as Julia just said, 
is is going back to purpose I think is a key part of that conversation um so we were interested in not just the reactive and emergency focused responses but but those how that means you could be ready for anything um how that affects the way you're going to work in the long term and also questioning where all of these changes good <laughs> they weren't necessarily some people threw out things that were actually really really great processes they developed um so looking at short-term changes and 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 what their long-term impact will be was one of our angles and the second one is going back to this global point so we did really want to get a global picture and and that is our focus trying to recenter conversations um and and think about what we can learn from others who experience crisis but i think also we know this global working is hard you know it's it, it's not easy to find your peers in different parts of the world um and it's it's even harder to make that useful for people so you know it's great they're doing that thing in brazil but so what i work in hackney uh we're completely different so what does that do to my what how does that affect my work um and so the way we did the work i think is really important for us and for that kind of um, contextualizing and application in your own setting. So all of SIX's work is relational. Um, it really is ba based on the relationships and the networks that we've built over the years. So rather than structuring this as a kind of traditional research project, we just started by having conversations with our friends in different parts of the world. Um, being really um, personal. We brought back groups together who have been on retreats that we've done. And we asked them how they were, uh, what was keeping them awake at night, um, what they were struggling with, how they were feeling about this. And that kind of snowballed into further conversations. They said, actually, you know, you should speak to these people. They've been doing that in an interesting way. And the work developed like, it, like that. Uh, into you know conversations with very structured conversations with 30 plus foundations across five continents and sometimes we went back and spoke to people multiple times so the final thing i'll say as well is then how do you communicate these findings i think is really important for us so um we really just didn't want to do a report so firstly if we're trying to recenter the conversation around philanthropy globally and make work more accessible Providing a 30 page report in English is not necessarily the best way to encourage people um, who are dealing with crises across the African continent or in Asia who don't speak English first language, uh, the best way to, for them to access this kind of content and this kind of learning. So we knew we didn't want to do a report. And there's also something very final about a report, like this project is finished, this work is finished and, and COVID clearly isn't finished. We're clearly in the eye of the storm still for many people. Um, so we designed a kind of dynamic, iterative, modular, multimedia approach to this work. So you won't be seeing a report on our website, but you will be hearing podcasts like this where we talk about our results. Um, you will be seeing provocations like Julia's, but not only in you know Alliance magazine here, but in philanthropy in New Zealand and the Indian Development Review. And you will also be seeing the people that we've spoken to and the people in our network who we're trying to profile their voices as well, not just our English um, analysis of their voices. So we're trying to get their voices posted in lots of other different philanthropy press as well. And we'll be looking at translation as, as well. And then finally, the thing that we'll, we'll be doing 
uh, over the coming months is develop is having some learning exchanges and some conversations around these things. So, so you can read the thing in Brazil and say, well, what does that mean to me? We have a sense that it does mean something to you. So why don't we have a conversation about that and how these different things can be, can be altered, applies, contextualized in, in different places. Um, we want to keep going deeper on this. And I think this project will probably keep going as we move forward in time. That's, yeah, that's no, it's great to hear. Um, and certainly what you're saying uh, about the, the approach you took reflects uh, themes that were coming through a lot from the conversations we've had with, with sort of infrastructure bodies in various places around the world, which is, I think, I mean, perhaps it sounds self-interested, but one of the things they were noticing was there was a real acknowledgement of the value of, of infrastructure and the need for it at a time of crisis. But obviously that raises questions about uh, kind of how you make it sustainable over the longer term. But but some of those elements of value were precisely that ability to bring together people and institutions who normally might sit within kind of cause-based silos or national silos at best with peers from around the world that otherwise they might never be able to share knowledge with, and also to give them a space within which it wasn't just seen as a luxury to think about these things over a longer time horizon. That was the purpose of it, because for so many people, even if they can have very interesting thoughts about that, it's just not their day job. And, and that's one of the things I sort of find constantly in the world of philanthropy is that if people aren't given the opportunity and the support to do that, it just doesn't happen. So it's, it's great to hear that that's, you know, that's a big kind of focus of the work you've been doing. Um, I don't know, at this point, maybe if Josiane, you could um, say a bit about um, what some of the things that kind of came out as key findings or themes from that work were. Um, it'd be really interesting to hear kind of where there were similarities you were able to identify, given that you were casting the net quite widely um, across different geographies and also, you know, where there were obvious differences in context. Absolutely. Um, you know, the the guiding purpose of the global scan was to look at what recentering the conversation means. Um, and Louise kind of spoke, spoke in detail about that. And Julia also referenced this idea of listening and humility and asking the question, you know, is this an event or an era? The ability to surface blind spots and affirm what is working in different places. And so that was kind of the guiding principle of the global scan. As Louise said, there were you know, over 30 foundations across five continents and uh, over a time span of about six months, pretty much before, just before the kind of pandemic really took, took the world, um, uh, yeah, took over effectively. Um, so the first big uh, realization for us is that philanthropy at a time of change and uncertainty is actually not a new way of working for many funders around the world. When you look at the history of philanthropy in continuous crisis, Julia um, obviously referenced those two. You have New Zealand and Australia funders who we spoke to who are still grappling with the aftermath of the, the Christchurch shootings and earthquakes and obviously the bushfires in Australia. You have um, a community foundation in Haiti who we spoke to who are grappling with the earthquake and the hurricane, Zambia and the HIV and AIDS crisis mirrored in other places um, around the world, obviously. Serbia, who talked about the, the double crisis of human rights, women's rights, migrant rights, and of course now COVID-19. Um, even you know North American funders who talked about having to restructure after the recession and that, that kind of challenge to, to how they were operating there. So this idea of you know how does philanthropy get to grips with change and uncertainty is something that we knew we'd have to to center in other places around the world and and 
the commonalities were were many, even though the differences in the kind of people that we were interviewing was, was were also really vast. So, you know, speaking to community foundations and corporate foundations and individual philanthropists, grant making foundations and implementing foundations, foundations that worked in specific geographies or worked on specific themes, some supported activists um, intentionally or, or artists or, you know, civil society organizations more broadly or considered themselves civil society organizations. The snapshot was very diverse and still there were commonalities that came out of it. For example, we are still in the eye of the storm. And that did surface the tension of, well, reflective capacity is a luxury for many, but also many felt like it was a necessity. What are we missing here? That's what it was doing. It was getting them to, to think about their decisions in a way that could potentially save lives. And you can't, you can't afford to be in a silo when you're um, kind of up against it. When the work is urgent, you also need to, to learn from others and, and think about what, what makes this work more effective. And so, you know, this ability to make sense of, of the situation and make very, very critical decisions, but still being in the thick of it was one very important kind of outcome of the scan. The second um, big learning for us was... Um, what the funders did before a crisis is actually who they were in a crisis. Um, we were expecting a particular answer when we said, what has changed for you in the way that you approach your work, your partners, your processes? Because the answer was nothing, like mainly nothing. The way that we, if we were community-centered before, that's exactly our, the approach we took during the crisis. Um, you know, if we were spending down before, we're just spending down a bit faster now in the crisis. And you know, if we had close and informal ties with our grantees and partners beforehand, WhatsApp channels and you know, you know, real relationships with people we were also supporting, that just was something that an asset they leveraged in the crisis. So the DNA or the way that they worked before a crisis is really just the only thing they had time to do and be in a crisis. And maybe the final thing I'll, I'll say in terms of commonalities, um, which Julia also mentioned, um, place-based work was definitely a theme that came up, um, but not, not just as a trend. We didn't, we didn't just see that this, you know, this turn towards local philanthropy was, was burgeoning in these places, but it was also a tension because we were beginning to hear this question, you know, um, who's in control of the money in the country and uh, you know knowing that where philanthropy is from and how it looks and acts is different from place to place particularly this tension around international donors and the precarity of, of funding sources um, for kind of smaller community foundations really amplified this you know who um, who gets to make the decisions about the work that we're doing and the knowledge that we have in this community based on who is funding us to do this work where the money's coming from yeah i mean a lot to pick up on there i, I mean i like the, the point about the the fact there are so many sort of similarities but also differences to me kind of reflects the the basic truth that charity or philanthropy at one and the same time kind of you know it's an it's about institutional forms and organizations and and how you kind of put that into practice and that might differ according to context and sort of legal environment but actually it's fundamentally reflects some pretty basic human 
you know, motives that, that are pretty much the same wherever you go across the world around solidarity and mutual aid and wanting to, to, to help your, your neighbours and, and fellows. And so actually, it's sort of unsurprising that you see the same themes emerging, even if actually they kind of exemplify them, themselves in, in different ways. And um, the, the question I wanted to ask, actually, just picking up on what you said there, um, I thought the point about the, the idea that who you are in a crisis is who you were before a crisis is really interesting. So I think there's been a lot of conversation in the world of philanthropy about the way in which the crisis by sort of short-term necessity, perhaps, has shifted some bits of funding behaviour. I think people particularly have been thinking about a shift away from restricted funding to unrestricted and sort of focusing more on focusing on core costs or trust-based and relationship-based funding. Um, and I guess building what you're saying there, if, if we are looking ahead to the next crisis at this point, it strikes me that what we need to do then, if we want those sorts of practices to become more widespread, is to to take the time now to make sure that people adopt them rather than sort of hoping that the crisis, the next crisis is what will force them to do it. What have, what have you been thinking about kind of the ways in which you can help to spread some of those practices that have been shown to be positive through the crisis to those who didn't already have them in place, if, if that makes sense as a question? The main thing is that, you know, not everyone has to be everything to all people. Um, and the different organisations, they know what they were set up to do. And that's largely what they wanted to stay doing, um, at least in the long term. And so this question about how can you learn from others was really important, just again, to surface blind spots, which was to make sure that the work is, is being really effective. But at the same time, it's not necessary to change, um, you know, how they were approaching this work. And, and just to make sure that you know, the, the the puzzle of philanthropic response was basically better coordinated and, and and better connected more than kind of a single picture of what is working and what isn't. Louise, do you want to, to come in on that? Yeah, maybe maybe just one thing. I think it's a, it's such a complex um uh insight to unpack as well and it it was for us. Um because you know, I think um, there was definitely an emergent sense that um, we need to be more more intentional about our work and ready to confront future facing things. And lots of people said, you know, the the better investor is the one who can predict the future, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and we've done lots of work on strategic foresight. And those are all quite nice um, ideas. But and there's also something about um, embedding those practices in your organisations before. So some people that we spoke to uh, really globally, actually, we saw this, um, had started doing lots of you know, co-creation and working with their grantees in different ways and co-designing things. And but but those processes weren't really embedded. They were actually probably more a bit faddy. You know, we think we should do this. And then obviously what happens is the middle of that, then the crisis hits and the first thing goes out the window is all this nice working with your grantees stuff, all this nice co-creation stuff. And so I think, you know, if, if you look at that in the context of the question, what we are uh, in a crisis is who we are before the crisis, you know, they clearly weren't really committed to that kind of work or or it hadn't been embedded in such a way in the organization that they could continue with it because all of a sudden that felt less important now so I think uh there is something about how you embed these different kinds of practices in a longer term 
uh, and, and, and across the DNA of your organisation. Because unless it's kinetic, commit, uh, unless it's it really is in the DNA of your organisation, it probably will be the first thing to go. So some of the examples that Josie and will will share that, um, particularly in community foundation sense, well not only but but mainly in smaller locally based foundations where, you know, they do have WhatsApp groups with all of their trust their their grantees and they can just give them a call and say, are you fine? Those kind of things. They were they were clearly embedded beforehand. Um, Great. And Julia, I think, did you want to just come in on this as well? I mean, I think it's true of all of us, isn't it, that actually people go to their comfort zone when times are really hard. I think we do it as individuals and institutions are no different. But it's also this time horizon issue, because actually at the beginning of the crisis, there is that sense of agency and fierce need to do something. Um, and certainly in the UK and some of the foundations I've talked to in Germany and Canada, that happened very quickly. They tore up the rule book and they were willing to do things differently. There are downsides to that and there are upsides to it. But I think if you look at the different horizons that six are looking at, how do you respond to the emergency? How do you respond to the recovery? And how do you respond to the future? Is the right framing, but the crisis is a long crisis. And I don't think we knew that at the beginning. So I think the tearing up the rule book was a response to immediacy. Um, I think now, six months in, we know we've got six months a year. I don't know how long we've got. This is a long haul. And I think, again, institutional funders are having to rethink, do we revert to who we were? Do we continue with this slightly anarchic approach? Or, and I think Six's evidence is showing, the more far-sighted foundations are really trying to locate themselves in the ecosystem. Say, what is our purpose? Where can we best add value? I think that's really interesting. I think I was I was going to ask something about that link to what um, Josiane had said before, because it feels as though there, there are a set of practices that everybody at the moment is kind of agreeing seem very positive, certainly in the context of the response to the, the pandemic. And some of them are ones that perhaps you might want all funders to adopt. But I know in, in what you've written as part of this, of this project and before, you've sort of highlighted that they're actually different. It's, it's not just about understanding the, the role of philanthropy and where it sits sort of in between state and market better. It's actually about understanding the role of different types of funders within philanthropy itself. And there are different roles that you can play. And it, not everybody doesn't need to be a spend down funder and everybody doesn't need to be a systems change funder. There are actually lots of different functions that they can perform. Do, do, is that sort of part of what you hope the conversation will be about people being more intentional about saying, this is what we are here to do as a funder and how we understand how we fit within this wider landscape rather than everybody thinking, well, there's a sort of one size fits all approach and that is what a funder should look like. I think you've said what we want to say <laughs> in this project precisely. There are different roles for different funders of all sorts at different times, but each decision has its downside. I mean, if you decide that you will use the emergency to strengthen the organizations with which you already have contact, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, but you have to be really honest with yourself. You are not then funding the new and the emergent and the challenging organisations. You're strengthening what exists already. That's fine. If everybody does that, then there is no scope for the new and the emergent. And that's a huge risk to civil society, I think. And, and maybe either Josiane or, or Louise could say a bit, I mean, I know in, in the notes you sent over, there's quite a lot about what you've been finding about some of these tensions and the choices that funders are presented with and what you found about, about kind of how, how people are going through those, those thought processes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks. So this idea about the stabilising response 
shops or supporting more different newer organizations I think is a really key thing that came up so you know some foundations of course stopped um, having uh, application forms online uh, and stopped accepting unsolicited applications so or new grantees so they could focus on their own um, which as Julia said is great but that also created um, and, and they said some challenges for them some negative consequences um, you know, there's a risk in baking in bias to the kind of organisations that you're funding already. Um, and as new organisations are emerging, as, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and, and lots of other things happening around the world, um, it means that you're not open to those. And one of the foundations that we spoke to, a corporate foundation actually in Canada who, who'd done this, said to us, it also changed the way we have conversations internally in our team. It, it, the diversity of the kind of things that we talked about just kind of stopped because we were just pumping money into the same thing. So, you know, that's the the the, the downside of um, supporting uh, just the same organisations. And I think that had to happen to have a conversation for them to be able to have a conversation about it internally. Say, okay, if we do this, what is the effect afterwards? I think there was also something about um, there's a few foundations that we spoke to who had who when COVID hit were in the beginning uh, or in the middle of a big strategy process. And they'd actually just been spending quite a lot of time thinking about their own organisations or their own structures. And many of those were just, again, thrown out the window and they decided to restructure very, very quickly and uh, work in a complete different way, which is working fine. Um, and, and that took uh, what a Kenyan foundation told us actually that you know you need courage and boldness to be able to do that and make some decisions this links to the power conversation you know sometimes at a moment of crisis it's it's helpful to have someone to make a decision about where you're going to work and and to just get on with it um but again there's a, a fine line between that you know not being reckless and and uh not um uh, demotivating all of your staff as well who have just been part of a you know two-year strategy process about what you want the new organization to be so I think again it comes back down to this awareness question of you know let's just be clear about what we're doing and why we're doing it yeah absolutely um, I, I wanted to ask something actually which touches on on uh, various things that have been said up to this point and I'd sort of be interested to hear how much this had come through the conversations you'd had which is which is that I guess the the response to the pandemic threw the focus back on the the kind of immediate short-term response to needs and then people started to think about what that meant for for kind of uh, longer term change you know if if the pandemic hadn't happened I would have assumed that this year was going to be shaped by concerns around the climate crisis and to some extent you know racial injustice and we have seen that happen at the same time but but those conversations to me had thrown up a real question at the sort of the heart of, of the world of philanthropy about whether pragmatism and kind of working with the world incrementally as it is is actually enough in response to to problems of that kind of scale or whether actually we need to be looking to much more kind of radical transformative change and I guess it's interesting in the context of the pandemic where lots of organizations were thinking about quite practical short-term response how that feeds into their thinking as they move beyond that to the sort of rebuilding and what comes over the longer term are they grappling with this sort of question and is it sort of shaping the way they think about 
what they do with their funding. Um, absolutely. So we, one uh, funder in particular that we spoke to in in Germany, were were kind of talking about you know when rapid response doesn't work um, in their own context. Actually, that came up in a lot of different kind of multinational um, donor cases too, who were trying to kind of pull funds, for instance, and realised that rapid response wasn't working that well um, for, for the level that they were working at. And like I said, the funder in, in Germany was talking about when it's not necessary. Um, they, they know what they're set up to do and then they're set up to do that well. And they understood that some are better set up to do systems change work and, and focus on the long term. And some are better to focus on the short term and emergency response or emergent needs and, and so on. Um, and you know, the tension around the short term and long term was definitely clear for us in terms of, well, some were saying funders want long term, out, want results and outcomes. But um, one funder in, in, uh, in Ghana was saying COVID is about having a long breath. It's about staying in relationship in good and bad times. That was a beautiful way to describe how they approach their work. And we knew that so many social issues, we heard this from a foundation, a kind of global foundation in the US as well about you know solving these social issues is not short term we need to have the long breath effectively but also as Judy and Louise have both mentioned you know new dynamics are emerging there are new decisions to make all the time and there are new networks and grassroots forms of organizing that are responding to these social change uh, these social issues that really also need to be addressed so um so for us, another kind of tension that came up was around these new dynamics that are emerging in the space and the rising awareness of intersectionality, which came up for a foundation, a venture philanthropy firm, actually, in, in uh, South Africa, who were suddenly using lenses on their work, the gender lens and, and the race lens, obviously, and, and thinking about that. There were also funders in the US and in Brazil who were talking about the need for multi-issue and multi-year funding. Um, so that um was a new a new uh, uh dynamic a new approach that was emerging that needed their attention they needed to respond to it somehow um yeah as mentioned the kind of social movements you, you've talked about that recently um i loved that episode and that was um about you know grassroots work and, and the new decisions around around that the dilemmas that come with funding and supporting social movements and and informal networks and so on that came up in Singapore for us and that kind of work pushed on on trends like participatory grant making and trust-based funding and equity funding which was a very loud conversation in, in the US as, as we were having these um these dialogues um and so those trends um are being pushed on a lot harder but you know how do norms get created in this space um, and as new dynamics emerge, something that I've, I feel has has been really inspired by by Julia's involvement with us is like, you know, how how do you support new dynamics and not throw away due process and precaution, and manage that tension? And so that's that's definitely been something that we've we've heard a lot, and yeah, there's no easy answer to. No, I, I absolutely agree, and I think that the point you made there about intersectionality and funding is really interesting because I sort of wonder with issues like the climate crisis and racial injustice actually whether 
they're they're slightly qualitatively different for funders in the increasingly they're of such a scale and they're so cross-cutting and they're not things that should be thought of as another cause that you could focus on they are things that all funders have to take into account across everything they do including you know their investments and their operations and their employment practices and you might well fund on them as well or you might not to be honest but you still need to take them into account julia i think you just wanted to come in there I mean, I think that's spot on. And I think we have to get used to thinking of some things as optional and some things as not. So when I talk about purpose, it's not, are you interested in the climate crisis or in racial justice? Those are not optionals. The the thing that you choose is how do I engage with this? Am I a first responder? Am I funding the long-term envisioning of a future? How am I building the links between the two? But there are some issues which are going to cover everything. And I think one of the things we've learned from COVID is that this unheard of pathogen in a year has changed everything. But actually what it tells us is that volatility is I think like the climate crisis and racial justice, something that's not optional. So if you are mainly a funder of high classical art and you mainly fund the Royal Opera House, you are making a political statement in doing that. I think you're quite entitled to do that, but you are going to be affected by climate, by volatility and by racial justice. You can't get away from it. Absolutely. Louise, you wanted to come in there, yeah? Yeah, I think, well, maybe the other thing that, that hasn't come up yet, but but comes up a lot for us in, in all of our work because of the the, the cross-sector nature of, of the work that SIX does is, is also a choice about how you work with um, other parts, of, how philanthropy works with other parts of society, and in particular government came up quite a lot, uh, of course, in this, in this work. Uh, so the questions around how philanthropy works with government is is a little bit again the ecosystem question who does what uh what's my place what's your place and that's very different in different places and but also who takes the initiative around working with government that was a a, a fascinating discussion with several uh, foundations from brazil to canada to malaysia and perceptions of government um in different places both encouraged and inhibited questions of where and where the where the funders were were supporting and and choosing to invest and and there was a real tension in in several places around the need to work with government on this you know we we all need to work together in this crisis it's not going to be solved by one or the other or these huge challenges of climate change and and racial justice they they can't be the um they can't be owned by one sector but at the same time um there's a challenge in, in places with um, uh, uh, more challenging political situations around how do you work closely with government whilst also having a role of holding it to account. Um, and sometimes there's even a kind of competition with philanthropy as well. So I think that's just an interesting and I think emerging discussion that we'll probably pick into uh, further but how philanthropy works with government particularly at a moment of crisis uh, and whose job is what uh, a really key point for us and, and if I could just add what the expectations of different governments are because certainly in the UK we've had the experience of government being surprised that philanthropy won't just fall in behind it at a time of a crisis it's very hard to make the case that we have to remain independent and set our own course. But actually, if you think crisis is going to be quite permanent, volatility is quite permanent, it's really important to have a clear 
um, exposition of what that means, because otherwise we will just become first responders as servants to government, which on some crises might be exactly what we want to do, but on others it won't be. And I think the global scan really illuminates that because it's much clearer the position that different governments are taking. Yeah, absolutely. It's something we've found in the international work we're doing that that question of the how you work with government, but even even sort of at a deeper level, what the expectations are of philanthropic funders themselves, but society more broadly about what what role philanthropy plays and what role government plays in meeting crisis needs, but also kind of longer term social needs. It, it feels like that's something that tends to shift in response to a crisis of this scale as well. I mean, I certainly noticed here in the UK, you know, you see in, in all those conversations about people having a kind of cognitive dissonance about the fact that at one and the same time, it's wonderful to see the scale of the charitable and philanthropic response supporting the NHS. But then people are saying, but should we be celebrating this? Because does it actually reflect the fact that these things are not properly funded by government? And, and this, I think, brings to light to me a conversation that we need to have more about where we feel the appropriate boundaries between state and, and philanthropy are and kind of where we are happy to see those responsibilities distributed. And, you know, it comes to light in a crisis, but it is a conversation that we should have had already, I feel. Um, I, I also just wanted to, to just cycle back quickly to something on that question of how you work with government, because I guess, again, it sort of brings me to one of my, my pet uh, things that I'm really interested in, which is the whole question of the relationship between uh, more traditional philanthropic funders and the kind of new wave of social movements, because, again, it seems that that kind of tension between pragmatism and, and idealism and 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 seeing it as a sort of binary choice is one of the things that we're all having to work through and that goes to the question of working with government I know certainly as, as Louise was saying there a lot of these funders seem to acknowledge that actually you need to maintain these relationships even if you don't necessarily agree with the government because that's just practically how you get stuff done but at the same time there's this increased pressure coming from from left field of these organizations saying no actually don't engage with it you know focus entirely on sort of outsider influencing and, and trying to reform the entire system and and that seems to me one of the the tensions we really need to work through in philanthropy and to try and get a productive conversation where we can get the benefits of that sort of more radical voice and those sort of less structured organizations that are able to to pursue some of that kind of change but also work with organisations that actually have the processes and infrastructure to support them because they're quite often lacking that. Um, and I know this is something we've, we've talked about before, Julia. Um, uh, I just wanted to, to come on at this point, actually, just to, to bring it round to saying, you know, a lot of, of what you've said there is absolutely fascinating. And I think, you know, people, it will resonate with a lot of people listening to the podcast, just to bring it on to thinking about, you know, what it tells you in terms of where the conversation needs to go next or what we need to be doing to ensure that we build on some of these positives or kind of address some of the the challenges and tensions that you've identified louise sure i i can um so i think maybe uh there were there were three points julia and Josiane and i can take one each i guess the first is around this finding your role in the ecosystem i think that that's a really really high thing that we're we're dedicated to um, supporting organisations to have a conversation around um, and also looking at kind of reflective and new forms of philanthropy and 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 looking at what sticks and, and where it sticks next to others but you know lots of foundations have, have spent time 
um, in very stable circumstances over the last few years. So that you haven't really had to think about that. There hasn't been that pressure as to, you know, everything's kind of fine and working. All right. So you haven't really had to think about um, your place. But, you know, as the world changes, these, these places, these these roles um, change a lot and new roles are emerging for philanthropy vis-a-vis government vis-a-vis other organizations vis-a-vis new social movements etc so identifying um, where your place is in this changing world um, I think is really really important and you know this is something that's come up a lot in this conversation but you know we we identified with Julia in one of the provocations she's done third three 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 ways of um three three uh places that people can be the the first responder that we've talked about before the stabilizer and also the the visionary rebuilder and um you can read more about these in in the provocation but just being clear on um your intention and then the way you design your interventions and the kind of the work you do uh, alongside these three areas i think is something that's really important for philanthropy so know your place in the ecosystem and know what you um and know the way the way you want to work i, I think there's something further which i'm sorry josiane i don't think um, and louise i don't think i've rehearsed this as well as i should have before but bear with me we talk about stabilizing and the risk that all attention goes to stabilizing existing institutions and therefore baking in inequality and we also talk about the need to recognize the new and the emergent movements But there is something else that threads through this, which is about fairness and probity. And I don't think, I absolutely don't think that the new and emergent movements and networks are necessarily things I would want my money to support. Because there are some that I don't think are part of what most of the foundations I've ever worked for thought mattered. But other foundations may think they do. So the stuff that's going on in the States and spilling over here, Um, about conspiracies is an emergent movement and network which is mobilizing a lot of people. I don't think foundations in the UK and probably in the global north have had to really wrestle with those difficult decisions because we tended to behave as if our sort of rather liberal progressive position is a neutral one. I don't think the world as it's emerging in this decade is neutral in that sense. It doesn't allow for that level of neutrality. So when I talk about probity I partly mean I don't want to see a lot of fraud in the philanthropic system because I think that will erode trust and I think it's dangerous, it's wrong. Um, but I think there's an additional layer on that, which is about foundations being perhaps clearer about where they stand. When I was chief executive of Joseph Rantree Foundation, we used to say we are independent, but we are not neutral. We're not neutral about poverty, by and large, we think it's a bad thing, <laughs> but we're independent of everybody else on that. And there is something about creating that formula that says this is where we will stand, which I think is going to be more challenging in the next decade. I'm sorry, it was unscripted, but it was on my mind. <laughs> it's very much on Josie N's mind, actually, as well. So um, I'm glad we're, we're connecting. And I, th- I think it's a really interesting point. It relates to something I've been doing various bits of work on recently, more, more around the, the sort of the specific context of platforms for philanthropy, because there's an interesting debate there about this, this neutrality paradox. And actually, people increasingly realising that there is no such thing as neutrality because a decision to present yourself as neutral generally means uh, ceding the power to somebody else to make decisions about what is done and acceding to it. And in the context of a 
of a foundation. As you say, it may be that people just didn't notice that there was a choice involved because generally the default was liberal democracy and everybody kind of broadly agreed with it. But um, actually, if the default is no longer that or can't be assumed to be that, there is a more active choice to be made because if you don't make one, you're perhaps being, you know, complicit in something that you you wouldn't necessarily want to be complicit in. And Josiane, do you want to, to come in here to, to pick up on um, what Louise was saying you've been thinking about? Um, yeah, so I guess building on that, the, the idea of the kind of internal capacity of foundations to respond to some of these tensions is really important. This, like, skill sets is something that, that came up as a a question and actually quite a challenge for many foundations who realised that their staff were no longer equipped with the same skill sets, backgrounds, um, approaches, mindsets that new philanthropy was demanding of them. Um, and so there, there was this, and also there was loads of tensions within teams, you know, um, about what we should be doing as a, as a foundation, what we've always been doing, we should keep doing, or actually what we've always been doing, we should stop doing and do it differently. And so skills, capacities, design of processes, um, you know, how how much funders stuck to a strategy as a map and not as a set of instructions. These were real tensions there. Um, and I guess in yeah, in Julia's provocation, it's so fascinating to think about the behaviors and practices that are needed in the context of an uncertain future and so much change as it's happening. So, you know, the need for foresight and planning, yes, the need of being able to use data um, and interpret and integrate less certain signals, right? Like the stuff that we wouldn't necessarily be able to measure, stuff that's more invisible. The use of tools and deploying them and applying them and contextualizing them um, as, as they, they make sense, you know, in the work that you're doing. Um, the ability to work in partnership and, and to collaborate. Again, Louise mentioned, not easy to do. And sometimes in the role of intermediaries is, is to kind of take on a little bit of that, that, that kind of um, groundwork. Um, and yeah, so I, so I, so I guess I'd say that the, the internal processes um, approach to strategy, capacity and skills within teams is something that seems to be really important coming coming uh, into the, the age that we're, we're facing. Maybe I'll just add on really quickly, just in, in terms of that previous discussion as well, that's in particular important as organisations to say, we must diversify our boards or diversify the, the number of, uh, the different kinds of people that work in our foundations. Um, if in terms of the position of foundations that's come up, because you know if you don't have a clear, um, political position about where you are then then all that tension within the teams is really really going to is playing out more so if the in, in part of the capacity discussion that we were seeing um and that we'd urge is is to have a conversation that uh, that acknowledges that everyone's coming from very different backgrounds in this conversation and very different political positions and very different positions on some of these big issues that you're talking about and that's going to create some kind of um, tensions as well and that probably what Julia is going to say too yeah and no, I, I mean I'd say I think like the more that we can make civil society a space that is not 
apolitical in a, in a sense, but somewhere where people from genuinely different backgrounds can meaningfully come together, which seems increasingly different in so many other contexts. I think that would be a very positive thing. Um, I just wanted to ask um, Julia here particularly about something, and um, you know, we've talked quite a lot about what next, and I think we'll, we'll come on to, to that a bit more just in a moment, but but you've certainly said that, you know, one thing we should we should expect over the next decade is that there will be more challenges of, you know, if not exactly the same scale um, of, you know, of a large scale. And, and that seems to to shine a particular light on the importance of resilience within the world of philanthropy uh, and you know the world of civil society and the role that funders play in that maybe you can say a bit about what that resilience looks like and sort of what funders should be seeing their role as yes well i suppose one of the things that's most striking about the impact of this crisis is that it's shown how fragile so many of our institutions are i mean frankly institutions that are not funded largely by philanthropy like the nhs have been shown to be absolutely fragile because they were running at such high levels of capacity. But in within civil society, we are losing at pace charitable organisations and their capacity. And that demonstrates a lack of resilience, which somebody has some responsibility for. And I don't think we can blame government for the fact that our sector has turned out to be less resilient than we'd expected. There is something about the business models we've been encouraged to adopt um, which have been to do with better trading, more independence. People like me have promoted this all the time, getting your funding from all sorts of places. What we've learned is if you're a household name charity, but most of your money comes from fundraising events and high street charity shops, you are in deep trouble. And I think the philanthropic arm of civil society, because I think philanthropy is absolutely part of civil society, it's not separate. The holders of capital within civil society have got some responsibility for this. We can't just say, whoops, they've turned out to be really fragile organisations, because the whole of society depends on civil society. So when we hear that Macmillan are losing 350 members of staff, we know we are weakened as a society because of that. And that's that was just yesterday's news. That's happening everywhere. So I'm interested in what can philanthropic organisations do to fund for resilience? And I suspect it involves some quite different ways of funding. I mean, who does the endowment belong to? Does it really belong to the foundation or should we be endowing some organisations so they have got a bit of a cushion and something they can draw on? I don't know. How should we manage um, our grant making, recognising that we're moving into such volatile times? There used to be a thing called year zero funding, which is you get funding the year in advance of need. Now, the Treasury hated, but actually, if you're setting up something new, you do need the money in advance. Because you do need, I mean, we all know this, we all know absolutely that before you start running a service, you need a year to get ready to run the service. And yet we only fund at the point of delivery. We never fund in advance of need. We don't have a ready-made approach to crisis and emergency that says when things get tough because there's flooding in colder doubt or because there's the next wave of COVID, this is what we'll do. I don't know what the answers to this are, but I do know that philanthropic organisations, the holders of capital within civil society, have got responsibility for the health and therefore the resilience of civil society. And running organisations on flimsy income streams at full capacity or 95% capacity is not a sensible way to run essential services. And if we think civil society is essential, we've got to find a better way of doing it. So I'm really interested in developing much more thinking about how we how we allocate funds in order to make organisations resilient, not just to reward them for a good application. That's my challenge on that. 
no and, and a good challenge it is um maybe the, the the where that sort of brings us to is just to to pose the question to to each of you i mean thinking ahead over say the next decade and we've talked about the fact that it's probably going to be a relatively bumpy road but should we be broadly positive about the you know the the the, the chances for civil society and the role that philanthropy is going to play in that i mean what do we think the biggest challenges are and, and what we should be focusing on um and maybe louise you want to, to take it first yeah sure um so I think we should be broadly positive, actually. Uh, I sometimes wonder, you know, when I talk to my friends who do work in essential services, as social workers, you know, work in the media, um, that maybe I, I live in a slightly different world because I speak to foundations all the time and, and organisations all over the world who are really trying to do new things and do have a very positive outlook on things and really believe there's another way and really believe, although there's hard work in it, that we can we can improve our society. So maybe I have a slightly rose uh, tinted glasses here because of the work that we do at SIX and what a privilege that is. Uh, but yes, I do think it is generally positive. And I think, and particularly in our work in philanthropy, because so many people are, are even uh, thinking about the question, you know, what we do in a crisis, what we did before a crisis is who we are in a crisis and there are more crises to come and we don't know what they are and we need to start preparing for them and being more resilient and thinking about our skills and capacities differently and being more reflective and learning from the fact that in this time they flipped and started doing a complete different kind of funding that they aren't set up to do and maybe they're quite good at doing the thing they did before and they're engaging in these kind of conversations and asking these questions to themselves and giving the challenge I think you know the first part of improving or changing anything is acknowledging where you are in the first place and I think that's that's so uh, brilliant and so I think it is positive from that view but I also think you know for six and the work that we're interested in doing next you know there's lots of new types of money around and philanthropy means lots and lots of different things going forward and I think the more that we can and we'll certainly be doing some work on this in the next year thinking about not only new types of uh, money but new types of grantees um, as well and I think uh, individuals tech you know um, you, the new bitcoin billionaires um, these new kinds of social movement. I just think there's a huge amount of energy in that diversity. And uh, we'd love to do some work to understand uh, what that is. But I think this diversity and this broadening out of, of different kinds of money and, and grantees will bring um, movements uh, is, is what we're going to need um, to solve the challenges that we don't know are happening ahead so yes i think i think it's hard work um but there is there is a generally positive outlook for me that, that's one for positivity josie and do you want to, to come in there and the, this is the power shift that's exactly what louise is, is referring to is we we're recognizing we need to be asking different kinds of questions and we will get different kinds of answers um and that's what recentering the conversation. That is what shifting the power actually looks like. Um, everything that we've said today is grounded in a decades of experience in the case of Dame Julia, and and B in the global scan with you know so many funders around the world who are living this daily. So everything that we've said is is really grounded in, in what we've heard and 
this is the inquiry about how power is affecting the work within foundations and philanthropic organizations between foundations and other ecosystem players in a country and also across the world, like around the world between different countries um, too. Um, and that kind of, yeah, to, to kind of go full circle links back to the, the year on power with our three inquiries around um, how philanthropy is renegotiating its relationship to government, how philanthropy is building an adaptive capacity and resilience in very fast changing times um, and supporting civil society in that. And also, you know, how philanthropy is, is shaping potentially quite disruptive, very also high potential um, impacts of, of technology on society and again just thinking about these future trends and, and tensions which we talk about a lot and the power shifts for us those three inquiries are, are things that we want to be um uh, uh digging into in different ways well good also broadly positive julia do you want to to come in with your thoughts i mean you've heard from louise and Josiane why i think six matters so much it's because it is bringing together that knowledge across the world to see what we can do next I'm broadly positive because how else, how could you not be? We have got to be positive because we've got to make this a moment of positive change. But it's opportunity and risk are balanced and they always are at, in the jargon, is a liminal moment. We know the past is not with us anymore, but we don't know what the future will look like. That is a huge opportunity. And I think we're really blessed with civil society in which I include philanthropy, which is by and large forward thinking, able to change, but it is itself under under threat. And it's under threat from forces that are really important to challenge. We have got to stand up against forces of populism and majoritarianism and things like that. So I feel positive because I think there is a huge amount of thinking and reflection but also action. And, you know, I think if there is a risk we face is that we just go in for reflection and thinking and not doing. And I think what I see from the work that SIX does across the world is actually the combination of those things can change dramatically. And that's why I end up being positive. Oh, good. All around uh, positivity, albeit with, you know, the required caveats, which is which is great to hear. And I certainly agree, you know, I think bringing people together to have those conversations but doing it with a view to what do we actually do to put you know some of this into into effect is is what needs to to happen more so i don't know i'd certainly uh add my my praise to to that um i'll, I'll say at this point thanks uh very much to, to all three of you this is not the, the end of the podcast there is going to be a surprise dvd extra in a moment but um but just at this point to say thank you ever so much you know i think the the work you've been doing on this sounds absolutely fascinating i'll make sure i put links in in all the show notes to uh to where people can find out more um both about what's already uh come out but also kind of where they can keep an eye on on what's going to be coming out of the project because it certainly sounds like you know this is very far from from the end of this work for for you and you know it'll be be great to kind of uh, keep on top of what's coming out of the project okay great well my thanks again to louise josiane and to dame julia for uh coming on the podcast it was great to have the chance to talk to them uh, i found it a fascinating conversation I, I hope all of you enjoyed it um i'll put links in the show notes to the work that six are doing and some other kind of relevant work that i've done and others have done if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society do check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website uh follow me on twitter at rodri underscore h underscore davis or 
at Philiteracy if you want stuff on kind of history of philanthropy. Uh, if you've got ideas for people we could talk to on the podcast or topics we could cover, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, leave us a nice review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next time. Bye!